Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, October 2nd, 2016. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock. And praise God, you are our redeemer. Amen. In 2011, I had a chance to take my second trip to the Philippines. I was part of a group of pastors from Hawaii who were invited by the child outreach organization Compassion International, a wonderful organization that does amazing work helping rescue children from poverty in Jesus' name. Well, we started out with four days in Manila, and we were working with the, the national workers from the Philippines that worked with Compassion International. We led a retreat for them. And then we headed to the island of Palawan. We were speaking at a church, Life Church, and they had a conference there uh, in the town of Puerto Princesa. And just before coming back to Hawaii, we had a chance to go to the world-famous Underground River. You've never heard of the Underground River. Anybody heard of the Underground River before? One. All right, Joe, thank you for being here. The rest of you are in for a treat. Let me show you. So we drove for 90 minutes from Puerto Princesa. We boarded a small motorized boat, this one right here, and headed to the secluded inlet where the river was. Now, as you can see, it was a beautiful day. And as we got off the boat, I couldn't help but wonder what we were about to experience. With over two and a half miles of navigable waterway inside, it's purported to be the longest underground river that you can travel in the world. We boarded our canoes, and with our trusty guide, we headed out. This is where we were going, the entrance to the underground river. Once inside, it was pitch black. The only light we had was a lantern that uh, each canoe had their own lantern to shine to see where they were going. But this is what it looks like when they turn all the lights on deep inside the caverns. Now, full disclosure, this picture and the one that you're about to see, I did not take. Uh, these are from the Underground River people, uh, but the rest were from mine. But you get a sense of just the amazing beauty and majesty that would be inside this dark hole in the ground that people may never have seen if someone hadn't found it. Oh, and they also had a bunch of bats hanging around. Um, <laughs> I, I, had, I, I used my flash to take the picture, not even knowing if there really were bats there, and sure enough, there they were, hanging out in the dark. Uh, nevertheless, it was an amazing experience, not just to see the beauty of this underground river, but the incredible feeling of being inside, in the earth, in this, in this place that most people never have a chance to go, even if there were bats hanging with us, right? Well, welcome to the fourth and final week of our sermon series entitled, Waiting on God. And we're looking at what it means to wait, especially when it comes, uh, when waiting seems to be connected to God or our faith journey or just seasons in our lives. And we're trying to figure out how to get through this. Part of why this is important to our congregation is because of the 15 acres of property that we have on the corner of 25th Street West and Rancho Vista. Over a decade ago, it looked as though this church was ready to start building our new sanctuary. We are still waiting for that to happen. In the meantime, we are faithfully paying down the mortgage, waiting for God's direction for the future. And we've been looking in this series, not just waiting as a church, but waiting as individuals. And two uh, figures from Scripture have been our guide. The first two weeks, we are following Moses 
and the Israelites 40 years of waiting in the wilderness until they made it into the promised land. And then now we're dealing with David and his close to two decades or so of waiting to become the second king of Israel. Last week we saw David's anointing and how waiting played into the early life, uh, his early life while he was with King Saul, and how God actually used Saul as an instrument to bring David to brokenness, to brokenness, so that he, so that God could root out all the parts of David that were not of God and be able to restore him to who God needed him to be. Today we get to see how that drama finally played out. And we're going to begin today uh, in this area of the Middle East. The En Gedi is uh, an oasis on the western shores of the Dead Sea. Numerous springs feed into this canyon, making it a refuge for humans and animals alike. Cliffs 2,000 feet tall rise from the coastline, topped by tableland. These limestone cliffs are deeply grooved by erosion, making it a tangle of canyons and caves. It's absolutely amazing. And it's precisely these cliffs that I want us to focus on for a moment. Now, you'll notice from this picture that the cliffs are pockmarked with caves, some of which are actually quite massive. This, or a cave similar to it, is where we find David at the start of today's story. This is where David has been forced to live as a fugitive on the run. No royal palaces anymore for this would-be king. No soft comforts of a king-sized bed to sleep in. No sumptuous tables overflowing with the choicest of wines and the richest of foods. No, David had been reduced to hiding out in these caves in the En Gedi. 1 Samuel 24, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told David is in the wilderness of the En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to look for David and his men in the direction of the rocks of the wild goats. I can imagine hiding in the caves, David often thought about how his life had changed. Ever since the prophet Samuel had been to his home in Bethlehem and had anointed him as the next king of Israel, he had been on the fast track to success, defeating the Philistine champion Goliath, being invited by King Saul to become one of the royal family about halfway through Saul's 42 years of reign as king, becoming one of the youngest commanders in the Israelite army, and then even getting to marry the king's daughter. Life was good. Until it wasn't. Until Saul literally went out of his mind. Flashback a few chapters from where we started. 1 Samuel 18 says this. The next day an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house. While David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand and Saul threw the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. As time goes on, Saul convinces himself that David is out for his job, that David is out to assume the the throne of king, even though David never says anything or does anything to warrant that suspicion. The fact of the matter is, Scripture says that the presence of God had left King Saul and had rested upon David. And everything that Saul does to try to change that just backfires on him. A few years ago, I came across this little book Uh, that became one of the most uh, profound experiences I've ever read. It's a simple book called A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. Its subtitle is A Study in Brokenness. And let me tell you, the book just shook my whole world up. 
Early in the book, Edward says that our lives have to be mixed lavishly with pain, sorrow, and crushing in order that God's seed, the kingdom, might fully take root in our hearts and in our lives. That God wants people who are willing to live in pain. God wants broken vessels. But nobody in our right mind wants to sign up for that, right? We don't want to go through that ourselves, and yet God knows it's something we have to do. Edwards posits that David the shepherd would have grown up to be King Saul II, just like he was, had it not been for the fact that God cut away that Saul that was inside David's heart. We all have that capacity in our hearts to be like King Saul, throwing spears, seeking revenge, doing whatever it takes to hold on to power, position, prestige. But maybe, just maybe, we can learn something from how David waited on the Lord and how he responded to the oppression, the attacking, and the onslaught that Saul had on his life again and again and again. As they sometimes say on my favorite uh, TV channel, ESPN, due to time constraints, we move further ahead in the action. So when David eventually leaves King Saul, uh, he goes alone. He didn't take anyone with him. No loyal followers. He didn't seek to discredit or misalign the the very man who wanted him dead. David went out to see Samuel, uh, the one who had anointed him. Saul sent men after him. Then he returned to meet with Saul's son, Jonathan, who was his best friend, and his dad was trying to track him down there as well. Then he was back on the run again, first in Israel, then in the land of Gath, where Goliath, his hometown, was from. Saul sent wave after wave after wave of soldiers to track down David, but he was never successful in apprehending him. Edwards writes, In Jerusalem, when teachers taught students to be submissive to the king and to honor the Lord's anointed, David was the parable. See, this is what God does to rebellious men. Suffering was giving birth in David. Humility was being born. By earthly measure, he was a shattered man. By heaven's standards, a broken one. And there's a difference between being shattered and being broken, because God is the one that breaks us so that God might fill us back up. It's here that something amazing started happening in David's life. As he was fleeing from cave to cave, people started following him. This is what we did with, uh, with Sage and the children this morning. First Samuel 22, David left there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Those who were with him numbered about 400. All sorts of misfits, fugitives, discontents, and assorted ruffians somehow find their way to David, and they attach themselves to him, and he becomes their unofficial leader. Now, did he ask for this? Did he tack flyers up around Israel saying, I'm looking for a few good men to join me in my rebellion? No, no. But as we follow the story, even though David didn't share their attitudes, he wasn't in the same categories they were, as they spent time with David, they began to be changed. As they changed their outward activities, their outward lives, slowly But slowly, their inward lives were changed as well. And here is where David's true kingship began to take root. David and his men were forced to live on the run in the wilderness. 
author, pastor, and theologian Eugene Peterson writes this, everybody, well, at least everybody who has anything to do with God, spends time in the wilderness. We've been there. If you haven't been there yet, it's coming. It's something that we all have to experience just as being human beings. Times in the wilderness. It was these moments in the wilderness, these years that David spent there, that taught him about truth and beauty and love. You never expect to find those gifts in the wilderness, but if we pay attention, if we look with our eyes and with our hearts, we might just be surprised. Those were the years that David knew he wasn't in control of his life. He had no assignments. He, couldn't, uh, he had no appointments to keep. His only task was to, to stay alert at all times and to try to stay alive, just be one step ahead of King Saul that was coming after him. There are 15 different stories about David and his men in this wilderness time. Near the end of chapter 23, David uh, is almost caught by Saul. His men are on one side of a mountain, and Saul's men are coming around, and it's like the classic movie. You see him just moving closer and closer, and the dramatic music starts playing. You think, oh, no, David's going to get caught. And just at the last moment, before they bump into each other, Saul gets word that the Philistines have started attacking Israel, so they have to leave the search to go and take care of that, and David is able to escape. It's from that close call that David moves his men to the caves of the En Gedi. 1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness of the En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to look for David and his men in the direction of the rocks of the wild goats. And so we are once again here, back here to the caves where David and his men are hiding, hiding in the darkness, trying to stay alive, doing whatever it takes to survive. And suddenly, things change. Verse 3, Saul came to the sheepfolds beside the road where there was a, a cave, and he went in to relieve himself. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to him. Good to you. So, you know what's happening here, right? Saul gets the call of nature that we all get from time to time, right? And it's ringing loud and clear. And so he leaves his men, his soldiers, and he goes, uh, wanders into this cave to take care of business. Now, anyone who's ever gone from a bright outside place with sunlight into a dark room or a cave like this knows that it, it takes your eyes a while to adjust and you can't see anything but, you know, when you got to go, you got to go, right? So David and his men have been in the cave for a while. There's, their eyes are completely adjusted. They see this whole drama starting to unfold. This is just what we were hoping for, some of the men say. A chance to get back at the very person who was causing their lives such incredible pain and struggle. The men encourage David to uh, take care of a little business of your own, if you know what I mean. Verse 4. Then David went and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. Afterward, David was stricken to the heart because he had cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to raise my hand against them. So David scolded his men severely and did not permit them to attack Saul. Then Saul got up and left the cave, 
and went on his way. So Saul is standing there right before him, or maybe squatting, we don't exactly know. But David has the perfect opportunity to rid himself once and for all from this troublesome king. And he could have cut off quite a bit, right? Saul's life, Saul's future, Saul's throne. Heck, he could have gone Lorena Bobbitt on him and cut off something else. But instead, no, David just cuts off a corner of his cloak and then immediately regrets it. You see, his time in the wilderness had taught David to look at things differently. In the darkness of the cave that day, David was the only one who didn't see an enemy before him. He saw a magnificent, albeit flawed human being, a man of God. God's chosen and anointed one, and David would not fight back. As Gene Edwards puts it in his book, it was as if David was saying to his men, better he kill me than I learn his ways. Better he kill me than I become as he is. I shall not practice the ways that cause kings to go mad. I will not throw spears. I will not allow hatred to grow in my heart. I will not avenge. I will not destroy the Lord's anointed, not now, not ever. You might say that the greatest gift that David learned during this period of waiting, and scholars will tell you, it was probably 15 years of just living in the caves. 15 years. I think the greatest gift during this time was the gift of submission. Submission to God and God's presence alone to sustain him. And the patience that was required to trust in God. Not his ideas of what kind of king he should be like or, or when he should assume the throne that he had been long before anointed for or even if he was man enough or tough enough or strong enough to keep holding on and get through this on his own. No, David learned the fine art of submission, of putting himself in God's hands. David is credited to writing many of the Psalms. His whole life became a backdrop for the songs that he wrote, from when he was a lowly shepherd in his family. I'm guessing that's where the beginning of Psalm 23 came out, that amazing psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I don't, I don't have anything to, that I should need because the shepherd takes care of everything for me. To the time when he sinned with Bathsheba and he penned Psalm 51 that said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Psalm 63 is another one that's credited to David. It bears special connection to our reading this morning. Uh, some psalms have a brief intro verse. It's actually not counted as the first verse. There's the title, Psalm 63, and then there's something in italics underneath it. This is what Psalm 63 says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. It was here while he was living in the caves in the wilderness of Engedi, that David wrote Psalm 63. And before I read a few of the verses to you, remember what was going on in his life, having been anointed by Samuel, and the years of waiting that ensued, thrust into prominence, welcomed by King Saul, then misunderstood, mistrusted, and blatantly attacked, forced to spend years on the run away from home, away from friends, away from family. He got to the point where all he had left was God. And he wrote this. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. 
because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. It's here in the wilderness that David was physically in a dry and weary land. And yet it was here that David also learned that God was his source of life and strength and survival. And he was there in the sanctuary of God's creation. There were no temples or churches back at that time. David was out in creation seeing the beauty of what God had created, learning from all around him. Sometimes we don't even recognize the beauty that is around us. That there are things that God can teach us here in the desert, the high desert of where we live in California, if only we'll open our eyes and see about God's splendor and might and grace. David was able to see that. And he knew that God's love alone is what sustains. Period. Now, David wouldn't become king until he was in his 30s. He never attempted to to take over the throne on his own. It was only after King Saul and his sons were killed in battle that the people of the south of Israel, Judah, invited him to be king. And then seven years later, the people in the north said, we'd like you to be king as well. And he was king over the entire nation. But that wasn't the end of the family drama in David's life. Over two decades later, one of his own sons tried to take over the throne tried to kick out his dad, and David responded with the same patience and grace that he handled uh, Saul and how he was attacking and treating him from his early days. Always seeking God, trusting that God would provide. Friends, life is full of ups and downs, and just because we've chosen to follow Jesus doesn't mean we'll never be in the wilderness. That's just part of being humans. In fact, sometimes, or maybe more often than sometimes, God uses those wilderness moments to help change us, to mold us, to shape us, to make us more and more like Jesus, to prune away, or as Edward says, to crush portions of our lives so that we might take hold of the seed of Christ in our lives. Get rid of all the things that are like King Saul, and that in our submission we might learn to trust God and God alone for our salvation. Now, if David hadn't learned this lesson early in his life in the wilderness, he could have cut to the chase, so to speak, and helped advance his cause in that day, that day in the cave. He could have become king a lot earlier than he eventually did. But he didn't do that because he knew he still had more to learn, that God had more to teach him. And in that submission, he longed and trusted and thirsted more for God than to become king. I wish I could tell you the exact time frame of the wilderness moments that you might be going through. Is this going to be like a three-month wilderness, a four-year wilderness, a four-decade wilderness? I wish I could tell you exactly when we'll start building on our property on 25th Street West, but that's not how wilderness times work, at least not if God is in control. The best that we can do is to trust that God is in control. We we can learn to submit to God's authority in our lives that we would long for and thirst for God's presence because sometimes life gives you way more questions than it does answers. 19th century poet and author Rainer Maria Rilke in his book Letters to a Young Poet writes this. You are so young. So before all beginning, and I want to beg you, as much as I can to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and to try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms, like books that were written in a very foreign tongue, 
Do not now seek the answered, which cannot be given to you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is this, to live everything, to live the questions now. Perhaps then you will gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. There will be times in our lives, brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves waiting, waiting, waiting. And questions will outnumber the answers that life affords us. I invite you not to run from those moments, but to embrace them, to welcome them, to live them with passion. And then perhaps gradually without noticing it, we may, by the grace of God, live into the answers. May it be so for all of us. Amen.